15, the scripture says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, you have opened the way to the holy place, the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, our sacrifice and our great high priest. And therefore you call us now to draw near, to lift our hearts to you in fellowship and in love and in worship. And the promise is that as we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And so we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would speak to us the words of life. That your word would come to us, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much conviction. That it would uproot and plant, that it would tear down and build. That it would do only that which it can do in our lives. So, Father, we present ourselves before you a living and holy sacrifice. Speak to us, Lord. We want to offer you an open ear and an open heart. So bless this time, Lord, um, and we give it to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Grace and peace to you. Um, The year... The year is 304 in present-day Tunisia, and a man named Emeritus has just been arrested. His crime? Allowing the church to meet in his home. The Roman emperor, a man named Diocletian, had recently issued the first of his three edicts against the Christians. And it was the beginning of the most intense period of persecution that the church would face in the Roman Empire. And this edict that was issued by the emperor prohibited Christians from assembling for worship. And it ordered the destruction of the scriptures and places of worship all across the empire. Now originally... The edict was to be carried out without bloodshed, but soon Christians were being executed and burned alive for their disobedience, for having the scriptures or for meeting together to worship. So Emeritus was brought before the magistrates, and he was questioned as to why he allowed the church to gather in his home even though he knew it was a capital offense. Emeritus stood before them and he answered, 
in Latin, sin dominico non possimus. We cannot do without Sunday. Emeritus was willing to risk his very life for the church's assembly, for this. It was something that he and those who met with him in his house could not do without. And for their conviction, Emeritus and the 48 other members of his church were executed by the Roman Empire. We cannot do without Sunday. Some things are more important than life, and this is one of them. I think of the millions of believers, potentially even now, the millions of believers in the Chinese house churches who meet illegally every week, or the small minority of believers in Iran who gather in secret to avoid persecution. I think that they would agree with Emeritus. We cannot do without Sunday. But what is it about Sunday that is our corporate worship that we cannot do without? What is it that we have to have that we would even risk death for? Now, I want to attempt an answer at that question this morning. Now, our passage... It divides nicely into two sections. The first is the basis of our assembly, literally what makes it possible. And the second is the encouragement to assemble. So the basis for our assembly is laid out in verses 19 through 21. And essentially, what the author of Hebrews is doing is summarizing his argument thus far. He's been making a case for 10 long chapters, and now as he starts to to turn to the, the practical end of things, he summarizes what he has said. And it breaks down along three lines, the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. And his aim is to show his readers that the new covenant established by Jesus is superior to the old covenant, which they're tempted to return back to. So they want to leave Jesus, and they want to go back to worship as it existed at the time under the old covenant. And so the author wants to say that Jesus brings those institutions and those forms of worship to their completion, and that he offers them or hands them over to the church in a new manner. So up first is the tabernacle. He says, beginning verse 19, he says, We have confidence to enter the holy place. We have confidence to enter the holy place. Now, what holy place? In the Old Covenant, the holy place was on earth in the form of the tabernacle and later the temple. And it rested in the midst of the camp of Israel, and there God's presence dwelt. However, as we've learned thus far in Hebrews, it was only a copy or a shadow. The true thing was and is in heaven. 
So in the New Covenant, the author wants us to know that is that we no longer have holy spaces on earth, a tabernacle that we go to, a designated place of worship, a holy place, because the true holy place has been opened up to us. Our place of worship is not on an earthly mountain, nor is it at a sacred tent, but it's at Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, chapter 12, verse 22. Now, how is this possible? How is the way to the true holy place open to us? Well, he says right after verse 19, by the blood of Jesus. So here the author picks up the theme of sacrifice. In the Old Covenant, how could a sinful human approach the holy presence of God at the tabernacle? The answer is through sacrifice. A blameless animal that was offered in the place of the worshiper. And that pattern is fulfilled in the new covenant. We approach God in his true dwelling place, not on earth, but in heaven, and not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the blood of Jesus. And his sacrifice does what the animal sacrifices could not do, namely to take away sin. His sacrifice makes us holy and therefore fit to draw near to God in his dwelling place. And therefore the author concludes, skipping to verse 21, we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now again, in the Old Covenant, access to God was always mediated. That is, one could not approach God on their own, but only through a priest. He led you into God's presence in the holy place. Now again, the author is saying, in the New Covenant, Jesus replaces the Levitical priests. And he now is the one mediator between God and man. Jesus leads us into the holy place. Not the earthly copy, but the heavenly reality. So, he summarizes his argument. Tabernacle, priesthood, and sacrifice. These are not abolished in the new covenant, but they are fulfilled. And those three themes have been the subject of our past three sermons. So, if... That made no sense. Listen to those past three sermons. And those are the basis for our assembly. Because Jesus has done these things, our assembly, what we do here, is more than a human gathering. That is, it's more than something we do for ourselves. It is divine worship in the presence of God. In our great high priest. Through his pleasing offering, we have access to the most holy place, the very presence of God, and we gather before him to offer up sacrifice, the sacrifice of praise, of thanksgiving, of our very lives. So in those three verses, the author summarizes all that he said thus far, and then in chapter, in, in chapter 10, verses 22 through 25, He begins applying it. How do we respond to the great things that Jesus has done for us? He says, Since we have confidence... 
to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, since we have a great high priest. So because of these things, he says, let us draw near with a sincere heart. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. So because Jesus has done this, since He is our sacrifice, our great high priest who leads us into the holy place, let us do these things. And those three let us clauses identify the purpose of our assembling together. In other words, when we gather as a church, it is for these three purposes. To draw near in the full assurance of faith, with a sincere heart, to hold fast to the confession of our hope, and to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So the original question was, what is it about Sunday that we cannot do without? And this is the answer. It's these things that we cannot do without. Now, we'll break it down in three points. The vertical purpose of our assembly, the horizontal purpose of our assembly, and then the outward purpose of our assembly. So let's begin first with the vertical purpose of our assembly. Verse 22, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place, the author says, the first purpose of our worship is to draw near. Now this is, again, what we're calling the vertical dimension of our assembly. Now, draw near is a technical term, specifically as it's used in the Old Testament, but primarily in Leviticus. And to understand what it means to draw near, we need to return to the tabernacle. And it's essentially a spatial metaphor. So prior to entering the promised land, Israel was a nomadic people. They wandered the desert in tents. And God's tent, that is the tabernacle, was always stationed in the center of their camp. It was at the center and the tribes were organized around it. So drawing near to God was always a physical act. An Israelite would depart his common space at the outskirts of the camp and he would journey into the holy place where God's presence was at the center. Now, remember, we talked about this in sermons past, that there, was a level, there were levels of, of graded holiness where God's presence was, was the most holy place. And only one person could enter that place once a year. And then there was the holy place, which all the priests had access to throughout the year, and then there was the tabernacle where any Israelite could enter. Now outside the, excuse me, the courtyard of the tabernacle, and outside that courtyard was the camp of Israel. And so you're going from what would be considered a common space or a profane space, not negatively, but just ordinary space, and you would leave from your space into holy space, right? You would journey closer and closer to the place of God's dwelling. So you were drawing near physically speaking. Now, of course, our drawing near 
is not a spatial thing. As we've noted, there are no holy spaces on earth. Right? We, we don't come to a specific designated holy ground or however we would think about it. Our drawing near is a spiritual drawing near. It's an ascent upward. However, I really like that metaphor of a physical journey. I think it's quite helpful. Because we too, when we gather in corporate worship, are leaving behind our ordinary existence, as it were, to draw near to God in His heavenly tabernacle. We are going somewhere. Now, of course, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Jesus, our great high priest, meets us to lead us into the most holy place where God dwells through His sacrifice. And that's what the author says we do in our assembly. We draw near to our Creator and Redeemer. Now, I'm sure I'm overdoing it at this point, these past four sermons, but I want to be absolutely clear. God's presence is available to us in our assembly unlike it is anywhere else. It's the only gathering with a promise attached to it. Where two or three have gathered together in my name, Jesus says, I am there in their midst. Now surely God is present everywhere and we are never without him. But there's a difference between his omnipresence and his redemptive presence. God can meet you in nature. It never ceases to tell his glory, but he doesn't promise to. God is not bound to anything. He can meet you in any place, at any time, through any means that he chooses. However, he doesn't promise to. This assembly, as unimpressive as it may seem at times, has a promise attached to it. When we come together, Jesus says, I am there in their midst. So as we draw near to God in his heavenly sanctuary, he draws near, he draws near to us. And it's been my prayer over the past couple of months that this assembly would become something that you long for, that it would become an object of desire for you because it's a time and place where God meets you. Where that promise, I am there in their midst, would not just be words on a page, but a reality to you. That this assembly might be for you what the tabernacle was for the psalmists. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. He's talking about the tabernacle. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. So one thing that I want in this life, and it's to be in God's house, and it's to see His beauty. So in our assembly, we draw near to God in His heavenly dwelling. But what is this experience supposed to be like? Right? What is it like to draw near to God and His heavenly dwelling? Well, in the beginning, in the garden, 
and the very first holy space, what were the two prominent features that we mentioned? The river of life and the tree of life. And at the end, and the city which is to come, the very last holy space, what are the two prominent features? Again, they are the river of life and the tree of life. Revelation 22, John sees a riv- the river of life, clear as crystal, pouring forth from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And on each side of this river that issued forth from God's throne was the tree of life, yielding its fruit in its season, and the leaves were for the healing of the nations. So what is it like to draw near to God where He dwells? Well, it's like living water that runs over our lives and refreshes the barrenness. It's like pleasant and sweet fruit that restores our strength, that nourishes us. Do you remember when Moses ascended Mount Sinai to enter into God's presence? The scripture says that he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, and he did not eat bread nor drink water. Exodus 34, 28. What an interesting detail. He did not eat bread, nor did he drink water. Why? Well, the Lord was his food and his drink. Moses was sustained not on sort of the earthly symbols, but on life itself. And so it is for us. When we come together, it's to draw near to God to draw near to the fountain of living waters, to draw near to the bread of life and to feast in His presence. That's the first purpose. But listen, none of this is automatic. All these claims made about what we do when we assemble together are inaccessible to us in the flesh. They are spiritual realities discerned only by faith. And faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. And just one other thing. We draw near to God, yes, but it's through appointed means. I don't want to give the impression that when we're drawing near to God, that His presence somehow indistinctly hovers in our assembly, that it's just somehow in the air. I think that can lead us in some unhelpful directions. Rather, God's presence is given to us through appointed means. That is very ordinary things. Well, what do I mean? Well, again, as I mentioned earlier, God could meet us however He chooses. For instance, He could meet us in the burning bush, as He did with Moses. He could meet us in an angel that comes to wrestle us, as that happened with poor Jacob. Or he could meet us in a still, small voice like Elijah. But again, he's not promised to meet us in those things. Instead, where God has promised to meet us is in his word and at his table in the scriptures and in communion. He speaks to us in the scriptures, encouraging, correcting, healing, restoring. We speak to him in our prayers, praising, thanking, asking and waiting, and then he invites us to his table, 
to eat and drink in his presence. God meets us through these appointed means. So that's the first thing that happens in our assembly. We draw near to God. We drink of living waters and we eat from the tree of life. Amazing. Amazing. But now let's turn toward the second aspect, which is the horizontal purpose of our assembly. And this is the purpose of our assembly, the thing we do here, that we do for one another. That we do for one another. So he says, verse 24 now, let us draw near and then let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So we come to draw near, but also to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And then he continues, verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So his reasoning is very straightforward. The point of the church's assembly is mutual encouragement. And if you forsake the assembly, you cannot be encouraged, nor can you encourage others. To assemble is to be encouraged and to encourage. And our assembly, he says, takes place under the shadow of Jesus' return. The author presses us to continue gathering together all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now why? Why all the more as you see the day drawing near? Because we need the encouragement and the stimulation in order to run with endurance, to finish the race that has been set before us. This simple and inescapable fact remains. We need one another. The Christian life cannot be lived alone in isolation. There is no such thing as a rugged, go-it-alone believer. And the text provides us with two reasons why. And the first one comes to us in that word, stimulate. It's a rather strong word in the Greek. And it literally means to incite or to provoke. It's kind of the idea of irritating someone. It's used elsewhere in Scripture to describe an argument that Paul and Barnabas had. Or was it Paul and Silas? It was Paul and someone else. It describes it as a sharp disagreement. So it's more than encouragement that he's talking about here. Like, come on, let's go along, like just encouraging someone. It has more force to it. Hence, in some translations, it's rendered to spur on or to stir up one another to love and good deeds. But again, notice the author, he doesn't say, let us love one another and let us do good deeds. He says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to these things. So, so it's not first and foremost about us doing these things. It's first and foremost about advancing these things in our brothers and sisters. And it happens through stimulation, through provocation, or through incitement. Now, what does this imply? That we need to be provoked to do good things, that we need to be provoked to love. What is this telling us? Well, simply, 
that love and good deeds in your life, in my life, are not automatic. He's telling us that they tend to fizzle out and to dwindle down on their own. Now, I'm training for uh, a 10K at the beginning of the month, and I have this audio-based coach, right? I put my earphones in, and, and the coach, he tracks me through GPS, and he knows the pace and the distance, and he'll come in, and it's these guided runs, right? Now, but sometimes I, I don't want to be coached, and I just want to run and listen to music. And you know something about those runs? Or it's just me, nobody else. They're always, always, without a doubt, my slowest pace. It's hard to keep motivated. I don't have Coach Bennett in my ear reminding me about my form and about my focus. And in running, as in discipleship, on our own, we tend to coast. On our own, we don't have the inner resources to resist the stubbornness of our own hearts. We don't have the inner resources to resist the drain that sin puts upon our will to do what is good and right. And what we need is someone from the outside, a voice, not our own, to come alongside us in our race and to spur us on. That is, to reorient us toward the prize when we lose focus. To push us along when we grow weary and tired. And to inspire us with their own example of faithful obedience to Christ. Otherwise, without this, we'll never run with the strength and the pace that we could. There will be all this fallow ground. Now, you'll make it. But all this untapped unpotential of what you could have done, the love and good deeds that were awaiting, that were never reached because you were never around your brothers and sisters. So our assembly is a time and place that we receive instruction, right, that you come to hear the word, but more so, well, maybe not more so, but alongside that, it's also a time of mutual encouragement. We're here to teach one another to counsel one another, to confess our sins to one another, to admonish one another, to bear burdens and weep with one another. It's not the work of a singular person, but it's a responsibility that we all share together. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now, the second reason that we cannot go it alone comes to us in that word encouragement not forsaking our own assembling together, the author says, but encouraging one another. Verse 25. So what does it mean to encourage one another? Now the author has already told us. <clears throat> Hebrews 13, or 3 rather, verses 12 through 13. He says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But, he says, encourage one another day after day as long it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what is the purpose of encouragement? It's to keep an evil and unbelieving heart at bay. Again, As with love and good deeds, belief 
is something that tends to wither away on its own. Faith in our lives is not a static once-for-all possession such that you have it in a certain degree and you'll always have it in that degree and it'll never change. That's not the case. Faith is something that needs to be maintained. It's something that needs to be encouraged and it needs to be nourished in our lives. It's like a fire that needs to have proper oxygen and fuel to keep burning. Otherwise, it will go out. Remember what Paul tells Timothy? He says to stir up or to fan into flame the gift that is within you. It's the same aspect in regard to faith. It will die out if you do not have the encouragement of your brothers and sisters. It will lead to what Paul calls here the deceitfulness of sin. And our hearts will be hardened and we will fall away. So if encouragement is about keeping an evil and unbelieving heart at bay, then it's done by promoting faith in one another. Christian encouragement is never mere positivity or optimism. Christian encouragement is not simply, it's going to be okay, or you're enough, or something like that. Rather, Christian encouragement always points one toward God. What it wants to stir up is not some sort of, uh, I don't know, self-satisfaction or maybe we take the edge off about the way we feel about ourselves. The point of Christian encouragement is to increase faith. And, and that's done by pointing one toward God. It's rooted in something deeper than the power of positive thinking or whatever. Now, Jonathan, in the Old Testament, is a supreme example of what it means to encourage one another. When his murderous father, Saul, was on the hunt for David, the scripture says that for Samuel 23, 16, Jonathan rose and went to David and strengthened his hand in God. He strengthened his hand in God. So it wasn't a self-help group. Jonathan strengthened David in God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So listen, here's the point, what I want to get to here. Encouragement is not optional. It's not an extra feature. It is essential to our assembly. That is, no one should leave here discouraged or cold in their pursuit of love and good deeds. Instead, We should leave here encouraged and stimulated by one another, departing with renewed strength to run the race that is set before us with endurance. To finish the course. Now, how do we go about this? One last thing here in relation to encouragement. Verse 24, he says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Stimulation is the product of consideration. Let us consider. So it begins with being mindful of one another, of considering one another. It's easy, it's really easy to dismiss the need for encouragement so long as we are inconsiderate of one another. That is, so long as we are going about our Uh, time here or wherever you rub shoulders with your brothers and sisters 
um, and, and you're not considering them. It's really easy to just think we don't need encouragement that much. All seems well because the problems and the difficulties remain under the surface. But a little consideration. Right, when you see the people that are gathered here with you and you think of all the difficulties and troubles that they carry with them, the sins that beset them, the discouragement and the troubles they face in their life, when you see the person and you see that, you know there's an ocean of need for encouragement to say something, to help our brothers and sisters along. So when we come together as a church, let our hearts and eyes be wide open toward one another, considering one another for the purpose of provoking one another to love and good deeds, to finishing the race with endurance. So we have that aspect. Now now let's end with this um, outward aspect of our assembly. The outward aspect. So, in other words, our service also has an evangelistic purpose. Now, this third element is obviously not found in our passage, but elsewhere. So, 1 Corinthians 14. That's where Paul elaborates on the theme. Now, the Corinthian church had a ton of problems, but a lot of those problems were specifically in their gathering, right? So, their worship service. It was off the walls. Chiefly, Their problem was the abuse of something called tongues, right? That is, it's essentially a prayer language where you're using a different language, right? You're not speaking in in, in your own, right? It's a very spiritual sort of transcendent experience. So, So this, there was an excess, an abuse of this in the Corinthian assembly, right? Um, Get on YouTube, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So on the one hand, their assembly was disorderly. Everyone spoke out of turn. They spoke over and against each other. It was chaos. And on the other hand, it was senseless. Each one was blurting out in a language that no one else could understand. So it was, it was just a chaotic, disorganized service. And the main problem here that the apostle is wanting to tell them is, is that no one is built up by this. No one is encouraged by this. No one is strengthened by this. And he compares their garbled speech to an instrument, a flute or a harp or a bugle that is played poorly. What you hear is not music or a call to battle, but what you hear is just noise. He says, so how are you going to respond? How are you going to do anything? It's just chaos. So he, he says, so also, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how, how will it be known what is spoken? For you'll be speaking into the air. So rather than sort of senseless tongues that only profit the individual, what the apostle wants is comprehensible speech, or prophecy, as he calls it, which benefits everyone. So 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, he says, One who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. And the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. And now Paul uses himself as an example. He says, in church, or in the church, literally in the assembly, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. 
He wants it to be clear, comprehensible, understandable. Now, obviously, there's a clear in-house purpose um, that Paul has, and it's that this stuff doesn't benefit the congregation. But there's also an outward concern that the apostle has, and it's for visiting unbelievers. He says, verse 23, If the church assembles together and all speak in tongues, he asks, and unbelievers enter, will they not say you are mad? Paul is concerned for the outsider, specifically that the congregation doesn't scandalize him. You come in and think this is just, this is chaos. Rather than tongues, what the Apostle Paul wants, now verses 25 and 24, what he wants is intelligible speech. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. So what is the effect of the church's assembly on the outsider? Well, it's supposed to convict him. It's supposed to call him to account. And it's ultimately supposed to bring him to conversion. However, none of this can happen if he cannot understand what is being said or if he thinks everyone is out of their mind. Now, there are three things worth noting here. The first is, unbelievers are expected to be present in the church's assembly. Now, in this case, right, they didn't have websites or billboards or whatever like we do now. These people would have been invited to the assembly there at Corinth. So they're expected to be there. The second is, unbelievers should come under conviction and be converted. So despite all our efforts to devise schemes and programs for evangelism, inviting someone to church is still as good a method as any. And then third, for any of this to happen, unbelievers should find the church's assembly comprehensible. Paul goes so far even to say that they should change the way they do their service so that you're not appearing like madmen to these people. So the key concept here is comprehensibility. An outsider should be able to understand what is happening and what is being said in our worship service. So the point that Paul is making is not that our service needs to be tailored to unbelievers, but that it does need to be hospitable to them. So what does that look like? Well, first... It's a service that's overflowing with the gospel. What builds up believers? It's not mere commands. You know, do better. It's not bare doctrine. Believe this. But it's the gospel. What builds us up is the death and resurrection of Jesus. What does Paul say? I have determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. That is the Alpha and the Omega. And we are strengthened by returning to the forgiveness and grace of Christ again and again and again. And so what builds up the church, that gospel, is the same thing that brings outsiders into the fold. So we don't need to be explicitly evangelistic. Get saved, get saved, you know, come to the altar, profess Christ. We just need to have the gospel at the front and center of our service. When you guys are hearing that again and again and again, it will build you up and it will convict the outsider. 
And the second thing is that we, our service ought to witness to the kingdom. In our corporate worship service, we protest against the world. And we proclaim that Caesar is not Lord, that the powers and the principalities are not Lord, but that Jesus is Lord and that his kingdom is what stands. So the economy, the prevailing ideologies, politics, all of this, they're idols. They're mere idols. We come together to embody a kingdom different from the world. And when we do, the outsider is called to something higher. They see something different than the world. And third, and lastly, service just needs to be understandable. So if you set the bar too high, outsiders are never going to come. I don't understand this. I don't feel welcome, so on and so forth, and, and I'm out, right? If you set the bar too low, you're only giving them more of what they already have. They have that out in the world. Why would I ever come to church to get more of it? But if you balance those rightly, the bar is high enough so that we're distinct, but it's also at a height where they can get over and understand it. Then that's where transformation can happen. And that's ultimately what Paul is after. So, three things. We draw near to God. I, gosh, I love that. We draw near to God when we come together. We consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And then we witness just by this, our service alone to outsiders. And now... We put all those things together in the Lord's Supper. We're going to draw near to God through this meal that he's given us. We're going to be edified through it, knit together as one body, and we're going to witness to the kingdom that is to come. So I'd invite you to come forward to receive the elements, to take them back to your places, um, and to prepare your hearts, but give thanks, and I'll lead us in just a moment.